0: Psalm 33, verses 1 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp, make a melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is right and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord that all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks God. We continue reading in Ephesians from chapter 1 and at verse 15. Paul says, For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may I keep up, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better.
2: If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood, and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. It's a quotation from Saint-Exupéry, the French novelist I've used it before, it's worth using again, teaches a valuable lesson about vision and purpose. People will build a boat willingly enough if they have a longing for the sea in their hearts. But without that vision, all you're left with is the grunt work of collecting wood and all the other 1,001 tasks that go into building a ship. The ship is only a means to an end, getting to the sea. And achieving that end makes all the work engaged in getting there worthwhile. At the moment at Brighton Road, we are thinking about the perennial issue of prayer. Every minister in every generation thinks, how can we encourage and develop the prayer life of the church? And Saint-Exupéry's quotation makes a valuable point here as well. Because I really think the way to get people praying is to instill in them a longing for the endless immensity of God himself. And that seems to be what Paul is doing in the second half of chapter 1 of his letter to the Ephesians. We thought last week about how the letter presumes that we need to be people of prayer. And Paul moves on to pray for them. But rather than praying, God, make them prayerful. Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. So that they can see God for who he really is. Because prayer, like building a boat, is only a means to an end. Building a boat gets you out to sea. Prayer puts you in touch with the living God. So Paul says he's heard about this church. Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. These two qualities are the the basic essentials of church life, if you like. Putting our faith in Jesus Christ makes us Christians. Loving the saints, that's the most basic of duties. So this church has got that right. But Paul sets his sights on so much more. Faith, tick. Love, tick. But he doesn't rest easy with that. He's not content with that, essential though both of these might be. Instead, his response is to pray for more. To pray for them all the time, constantly petitioning God for them in his prayers. And he doesn't pray that their prayer life might deepen or that their worship might be enhanced. He prays that God would enable them to know him better. Or that they might know God completely. And that makes sense, because how can you get to know God without praying to him? So rather than focusing on the act of prayer itself, Paul prays for the kind of deep, personal, even intimate knowledge of God that can only come about through prayer. Prayer is the means, knowing God is the end. And in his prayers, Paul rightly focuses on the end itself. But then he goes on to expand his prayer in three different directions. He asks that they would know the hope to which they've been called. The riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And the incomparably great power for us who believe. All this is about expanding horizons, getting a better eternal perspective. There are events in the world, there are aspects of church life that can sometimes threaten to fill us with dismay and despair, but Paul makes the point that God has called us to hope. And hope is a feeling of expectation or desire that something is going to happen. And as I've said again before from this pulpit, as Christians who believe in the living God, we are called to be optimists. Because the God we believe in is almighty. And for him nothing is impossible. And he's called us to put our trust and our confidence in him. And to have hope because of who he is. That's not the same as shutting your eyes to the reality of how things really are and fondly imagining that everything's (coughs) going to work out all right in the end. But it does mean not succumbing to an attitude of defeatism. Not giving up. Not just shrugging your shoulders and saying, oh, what's the point? If God calls us to hope, it means he calls us to move forwards. To keep on looking for a way through. Looking up to him means looking ahead. And having a hope lends a degree of gratitude to our prayers as we thank God that he will make the future worthwhile. If we know God, that knowledge of who God is will bring us hope. A hope that's grounded in the confidence and the sovereignty and the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Then as well, Paul praised that his readers would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's a bit of a mouthful. But it refers to the glorious inheritance that God has prepared beyond this life for those who belong to him. Not hope in the immediate future, but hope in the eternal future. And that will be worth waiting for. Let me rephrase that. It will be worth striving for giving our everything for, giving up stuff we could have here and now for, all for the sake of what God has prepared, which is beyond our wildest imagining or our understanding or our comprehension. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That is the ultimate hope of heaven, of eternal life Beyond this one. The eternal life that Jesus has secured for us through his death and resurrection. That's why Jesus went through the grave and out the other side, so that we would know we have eternal life. And an eternal life which God has guaranteed to us through his gift of the Holy Spirit, which Paul describes as a, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until that moment when Christ comes to redeem us. If you buy something on the never-never and you put a deposit down, you are entitled to use it until such time when the price is paid in full. It belongs to you. Christ has put his Holy Spirit as a deposit in our lives, signifying that we belong to him. And eternal life is ours and it will be ours in its fullness when Christ comes to redeem us and take us to be with himself. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit is like a little bit of heaven here and now in our hearts. A pledge that God has given to us. That when the moment comes for Christ to return or for God to call us home, then the glories of heaven will be ours. Holy Spirit is a sign that that is where we belong, that is what God has prepared for us, and he has pledged himself to deliver on those promises. So this is an invitation for us to take a step back. Take the long view. The eternal perspective. And to draw strength from that. Don't get bogged down in the demands of the immediate. Nose to the grindstone. Step back. Look up. Take in the horizon of eternity. Take a deep breath of God's spirit. And allow that to renew your soul and to inspire you for daily living. And then Paul prays that his readers would become aware of the surpassing greatness of God's power, which is available to us as those who put our trust in Christ. What kind of power are we talking about here? We're talking about the power exercised by God when he raised Jesus from the dead. We're talking about miraculous power. Life-giving power. A power that brings life out of death. A power that changes disastrous situations and redeems them, a power that makes all the difference in the world. It's this power that will raise us from death when our time comes. It's that life-changing power that gives us good reason to face the future with hope because nothing is impossible with God. It's that power that inspires us to be bold in our prayers. Not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, he exalted him to his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age but also in the age to come. If, as they say, it's who you know that's important for getting on in life, then remember who you know in the highest place. There is. And one who is not afraid to use his influence on your behalf. Because as Paul puts it, God has placed everything under the feet of Christ. And appointed him to be head over all things for the church. For us. If that's not a motivation for prayer, I don't know what is. We're not flinging thoughts into empty space. We are communicating with the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, and who reigns in the highest place on our behalf and for our sake. His exaltation means we have an extremely privileged position that we make use of when we pray. Often we can lose sight of these realities. Sometimes they're just obscured by the reality of the daily grind. Life is too busy, too hectic. There are too many other things taking our attention. God seems too remote. We've had too many experiences of prayer which doesn't seem to be answered. And when we lose sight of that vision, it's easy to lapse into living our lives as those who have no hope, no real prospect of life after death. We believe it as something that's remote and distant and doesn't really impinge on our present because we don't want to quite get there yet anyway. And if we're prayerless, then we we don't have any resources to draw on but our own depleted energies. And that becomes a spiral which can be quite negative and destructive. Paul wants to wake us up, to get us to open our eyes to the reality of God. Of how knowing him can give us hope, both for the immediate future and for eternity, and to be aware of his powerful resources that are available to us as we seek to make our way through life under his sovereign guidance and direction. Does any of this really connect with you? Whenever the Bible speaks about heavenly realities or Miraculous or tries to convey something of what God is really like, it is perhaps inevitable that the words on the page struggle to convey any sense of the realities to which they refer. That's why worship is so important, because music somehow connects at a different level with us. And the words come to life sometimes, and we think, oh wow, yes, this is this is God. And our eyes are opened. Maybe as I've spoken, or as we worship tonight, you've caught a glimpse of what Paul is on about in this passage. Oh, yes, God is amazing. Oh, yes, heaven is going to be fantastic. Yes, there is hope. Yes, there is power. Yes, I want to know God more. The danger of glimpses is that we just, oh yeah, that was great. We shrug our shoulders and file it away for future reference as we just begin to gear ourselves up for tomorrow and yet another heavy week to come. The problem with the glimpse is that it's fleeting, it doesn't appear to change much. It's easy to miss it altogether, actually. Yet if you caught a flash of heaven's glory or the reality of God in this service just catching something out the corner of your eye as through a crack in the door, then stop pause. Retrace your steps. Take another look. Because although it was only a glimpse, it was only a glimmer, that doesn't mean to say that the reality that you saw is insignificant. What you saw is amazingly real. What needs to happen is that the aperture through which you caught sight of that reality needs to be enlarged. You need to take the time to get a better view. Because it was only a glimmer. But the problem is with the aperture, not with the reality that you caught sight of. The more you see, the more real it becomes. The more marvellous you understand it to be. The greater impact it can have on our day to day lives. That's why Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That our eyes would be opened wide to the reality of all this. And as St. Richard of Chichester prayed, that we would see God more clearly. And as a consequence, love Him more dearly. And as a subsequent consequence, that we would follow him more nearly day by day. And what does all this have to do with prayer? Well, our prayers can so often be taken up with the demands of the immediate, praying for this or that situation in the world, or this or that person, or this or that situation which we're encountering. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's entirely appropriate that we bring our needs and lay them at God's feet. But this passage he encourages us to focus on who it is that we're bringing our needs to. It's Jesus Christ. The one who is exalted above every ruler, power, authority and dominion. It's Jesus Christ, who was raised from death by God's almighty power. It's Jesus Christ, who supplies that power to us every single day of our lives, giving us confidence and hope for the immediate future and holding out the assurance of a life beyond the grave. It's Jesus we come to in prayer. That's our privilege. I speak to you tonight as people who have a faith in Jesus Christ, as people who have a love for one another, and that is brilliant, but there is so much more. A clear focus on Jesus opens our eyes and delivers us from the despondency that comes with exhaustion on the one hand and the indifference which comes with complacency on the other. There is so much more to God. I'll be honest, the trouble with reading and preaching on what is to me a very well-known passage as you read it and you say, I know all that. And maybe you think, oh yeah, I know that passage. Maybe we do know it. But do we know and understand the realities to which the passage refers? We get a glimmer. It's Nothing more. A glimmer of the reality of God and his sovereignty and his power and the realities of heaven. So let's stop and ask God to open the eyes of God. Of our hearts. We might see Him, know Him, and understand Him, and be drawn to Him, and live our lives for Him, and trust Him, and pray to Him.